0: section twenty one of the most extraordinary trial of william palmer by anonymous this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by lynn thompson tenth day may the twenty fourth part three but the case does not stop there because we have the most indisputable evidence that on the following day palmer perched more strychnine at the shop of mr hawkins you remember the circumstance connected with that purchase, Palmer's first asking for some prussic acid, and then ordering some strychnine to be put up for him. Newton coming in, and the prisoner calling him out of the shop to speak to him of the most unimportant matters. Why did the prisoner take Newton out of the shop? Evidently because he wished to avoid exciting suspicions that would very naturally be raised, in the mind of Newton, from the fact of the prisoner having purchased strychnia on two occasions and who would very naturally inquire for what purpose it was that the prisoner wanted nine grains of strychnine. Why did the prisoner go to Hawkins's shop to purchase the poison? The reason was clear. If he had gone to Thirlby's, who was his former assistant, he would naturally have asked Palmer for whom the strychnine was intended. Why the prisoner should have gone on two successive days and purchased the poison is one of those mysteries attending this case, which I cannot explain at all events it is quite clear that he did so but if there is some difficulty in this part of the case there is on the other hand a still greater difficulty arising from the use to which the poison was to be put if it was for the purpose of professional use for the benefit of some patient where is the patient and why was he not produced my learned friend passed over this part of the case in mysterious but significant silence Account for that six grains of strychnia. throw a doubt, if you please, on the purchase of the strychnine on the Monday night, but on Tuesday it is unquestionably true that six grains were purchased. If these six grains were purchased for the use of any patients, why were they not produced, and if for any other purpose, why was it not explained? Has there been the slightest shadow of attempt to show the use to which the poison was applied? alas no something was said at the outset about dogs which were troublesome in the paddock to the prisoners mares and foals but that was proved to have been in september and if there had been any recurrence of this annoyance why was it not proved in evidence if it were used for the purpose of destroying dogs some one must have assisted him in the act why were they not called but not only were these persons not called they were not even named i ask you what conclusion you can draw from these circumstances except this one that the death of cook took place with all the symptoms of poison by strychnia death in all the convulsions and throes which that deadly poison produces in the frame of man it is said by my learned friend that palmer might easily have purchased strychnine at london and that he would not have purchased it in rougely on two occasions if he had intended to have used it for a criminal purpose i admit the fact and feel the full force of the observation and if he could have shown any proper use to which the poison was applied the assertion would have been one well worthy of your consideration but how do the facts stand with respect to palmer's visit to london he might it is true have purchased strychnine there but then on the occasion of his visit he had a great deal to do he had to catch the train he had pecuniary difficulties to settle and arrange and even then it would have required the certificate of one other person in order to have obtained the strychnine, as he was not known in London as a medical practitioner. But what avail all these suppositions when we have, on the other hand, the strong and unmistakable evidence that the prisoner did actually purchase the strychnine at Rugeley? Well, then, it has been said that the fact of the prisoner having called in two medical men with strong presumptive evidence to negate his guilt it is true that he called in dr bamford and wrote to dr jones to come and see cook now as medical men it is true that they would be very likely to know the symptoms of death by strychnine but there is a point in this part of the case which deserves notice if these symptoms exhibited were not those resulting from strychnia but were referable to that multiform variety of diseases to which the witnesses have referred there is no reason why the prisoner should have any credit for sending for these medical gentlemen it is quite true that he called an old dr bamford i speak of that gentleman in no terms of disrespect but still i think i do him no injustice when i say that the vigour of his intellect and the powers of his mind have been impaired as all human powers are liable to be by the advance of age i do not think he was a person likely to make any very shrewd observation as to the cause of the death of cook and the best proof of this is to be found in what he did and what he wrote on the subject as regards mr jones these observations do not apply for he was a man in the possession of the full powers of mind the prisoner selected jones and the result proved how wise he was in making that selection The death of Cook occurred in the presence of Jones, and all those painful symptoms you have heard described, and yet Jones suspected nothing, and if the prisoner had succeeded in introducing Cook's body into that strong oak coffin which he had made for him, the body would have been consigned to the grave, and nobody would have known anything of these proceedings, while the presence of Jones and Dr. Bamford would have been used to prevent any suspicion. On the other hand, It is not at all improbable that the prisoner might have thought that the best mode of disarming all suspicions would be to take care that some medical men should be called in, and should be present at the time of death. There is nothing to show that the prisoner entertained the most distant notion that Jones would have to sleep in the same room as Cook, and if this had not been the case, they would have found in the morning that Cook had gone through his mortal struggle, and had died there, alone and unfriended. Cook would have been found dead next morning, and the old man would have said he died of apoplexy, and the young man that he died of epilepsy, and had any suspicion been awakened it would have been urged in reply, as it has been by my learned friend, that two medical men were called in by the prisoner previous to his death. But the case does not end there. We have had a great many witnesses who have told us a great deal about strychnia, but none that have said a word about antimony. On the Wednesday night at Shrewsbury, when Cook drank a glass of brandy and water, he said that there was something in it which burned his throat, and was afterwards seized with vomiting, which lasted for several hours. On the same night, Mrs. Brooke saw the prisoner shaking something in a glass. It is a remarkable fact that when Cook drank that brandy and water, he was taken ill a few minutes after. There were, it is true, other persons taken ill at Shrewsbury about the same time. But still you will have to bear in mind that scene of the shaking up of the fluid in the glass in the passage, the fact that Cook was somewhat in liquor, and that in that state he ought not to have been told by the prisoner that he would not drink any more, unless he finished his glass. Pass on, however, to Rougelieu. You will still find that Cook was under the influence of the same symptoms as those which he suffered at Shrewsbury. You have the fact of the prisoner sending him over toast and water and broth, and that no sooner had the poor man taken these things than he is seized with incessant vomitings of the most painful character. Then, too, there was the broth, said to have been sent by Smith from the Albion, which was sent, however, not to the Talbotin, but to the prisoner's kitchen. This broth was taken over to the Talbot by the prisoner himself, and as soon as it was touched by Cook, vomitings followed there is too the fact that the servant at the talbot after taking two spoonfuls of the broth was ill for several hours and vomited something like twenty times then again on the monday when the prisoner was absent cook was found to be better but upon the tuesday when he returned to rugeley the vomitings again returned now the important fact is that antimony was found in the tissues of the poor man's body and in his blood and the presence of the antimony in the blood shows that it must have been taken within the last forty-eight hours before death the small quantity found does not afford however the slightest criterion of the whole quantity administered a part of the quantity given would have been thrown up in the vomiting something has been said about cook having taken the antimony in james's powder but not a little of evidence has been given that he took any of these powders while the presence of the antimony in the blood proved that it had been administered within forty-eight hours of death i believe that you will feel that you have a right to conclude from all the evidence that has been brought before you upon this point that antimony had been administered to cook in a mode and in quantities which showed that it could have been given for no legitimate object and further that it must have been administered by the prisoner and from these facts you will see how great is the probability that he must, in that case, have acted with a view of carrying out a fatal resolution previously formed. For it is well known that antimony has often been given in amounts capable of destroying life. But let us take into consideration the conduct of the prisoner in the after stages of the case, and let us look at what took place on the day of Cook's death. On the preceding night he had suffered from what was indisputably a most severe attack dr bamford sees palmer on the tuesday morning and not a word is said to him about the attack the prisoner manifests an anxiety that he should not see the deceased he states that cook is quiet and is dozing and that he does not wish to have him disturbed that might be but on the other hand it must be remembered that if dr bamford had seen cook in the morning cook would in all probability have made known to him his frightful suffering of the night before and they must then have formed the subject which was of all others the most present to his memory dr bamford however did not see the deceased until seven o'clock on the tuesday evening when he was much better palmer had then talked of his having suffered from a bilious affection and it is a remarkable fact that he had more than once represented the illness of cook as one arising from a bilious attack both to dr bamford and dr jones although the patient had exhibited none of the symptoms which ordinarily accompany a bilious constitution. The moment Dr. Jones saw him, he made the observation that his tongue was not that of a bilious patient, and the answer he got from Palmer was, Oh, you should have seen him before. Seen him when before? There was not the slightest ground for supposing that he had been suffering from any bilious complaint, either at Shrewsbury or since his arrival at Rugeley." But not one word did Palmer say to Dr. Jones about the fit of Cook on the night before. Well, the three medical men consulted together, by the bedside of the patient, and then Cook turned round and said, Mind, I will have no more pills and medicine tonight, remembering, as he no doubt did at the time, his illness of the preceding night. No observation was made even then by Palmer as to what had been the nature of Cook's attack on the night before but the medical men having withdrawn to the adjoining room or lobby palmer immediately proposed that cook should again take the same pills he had taken on the previous night but he desired jones not to say anything to him about what they contained lest he might object to take them it was then arranged that the pills should be made up and palmer proposed that they should be compounded by dr bamford although it was then early in the evening and he might easily have prepared them on his own premises He accompanied Dr. Bamford to the surgery of the latter, and after the pills had been made up there, he asked Dr. Bamford to write the address on them, and the address was so written. An interval occurred of an hour or two during which the prisoner had abundant opportunities of going to his surgery, and doing what he pleased in the way of changing the pills. He returned to the hotel, and before he gave the pills to cook, he took care to call the attention of Jones, who was present at the time, to the remarkable handwriting of an old gentleman like dr bamford by whom the direction of the medicine had been written what necessity was there for that might it not have been part of a preconceived design to save himself from any subsequent suspicion by his being able to state that the pills had been prepared by dr bamford and might it not have been done for the purpose of disarming any immediate suspicion on the part of dr jones himself have we not every reason to suppose that it may have been effectual in accomplishing the latter result any one of these circumstances could not have been of so decisive a character as to lead you to the conviction of the prisoner's guilt but i ask you to consider them as a series of events following one another in close succession and then i leave it to you to draw from them the conclusion to which you may find they must legitimately lead I will now pass over for a moment the remainder of the history of the Tuesday night, and I will take you to the circumstances which immediately followed Cook's death. On the Thursday, Mr. Stevens, the stepfather of the deceased, went over to rugeley on receiving intelligence of the sad event. He applied to Palmer for information upon the subject of Cook's affairs, and in the course of the communications which passed between them, Stevens said, rich or poor the poor fellow should be buried palmer then observed that he would undertake to bury him himself but mr Stevens declined in a decisive manner to avail himself of that offer i admit that there may be nothing suspicious in the proposal of palmer to bury his friend if it should be taken by itself but there is this somewhat remarkable circumstance on this part of the case that when mr stevens had said that he could not have the funeral for a few days palmer observed that the body ought to be put in a coffin immediately and when after an absence of about half an hour he returned and was asked by mr stevens for the name of an undertaker to whom he should give directions about the funeral the prisoner stated much to the surprise of the gentleman whom he was addressing that he had himself ordered a shell and a strong oak coffin why should he have so hurriedly interfered in the business of another man unless he made up his mind that the body should be consigned to its last resting-place and removed from the sight of man with the utmost possible rapidity you have heard the conversation which took place between mr stevens and the prisoner on the saturday at the different railway stations at which they met It appears that at that time Mr. Stevens had made up his mind that a post-mortem examination of the body of the deceased should take place, in consequence of circumstances which had engendered a suspicion in his mind that the death of his stepson had not been the result of natural disease. He had noticed the strange attitude of the deceased, his clinched hands, and the unusual appearance of his face, and, being a man of natural shrewdness and sagacity, he felt a lurking suspicion, which he could not unravel, that there must have been foul play in the case. He made known to the prisoner his intention of having the body opened before it was consigned to the grave. It is true that the prisoner did not flinch from that trying ordeal, and that he met with firmness the trying gaze of Mr. Stevens when the report of the post-mortem examination was first mentioned. But finding that there was to be a post-mortem examination He was anxious to know who was to perform it. Mr. Stevens would not inform him, but merely stated that it was to take place on the Monday. Then we have on the Sunday that remarkable conversation between the prisoner and Newton, which has been for some time known to the Crown. It is true that Newton did not mention the conversation in the course of his examination before the coroner, but the reason for this silence upon the subject on that occasion may be easily proved. He was called at the inquest solely for the purpose of corroborating the evidence of Roberts, with respect to Palmer's appearance in Dr. Hawkins's shop on the Tuesday morning, and to that point his evidence before the coroner was confined. He has since deposed that during a conversation with Palmer on the Sunday, the latter suddenly asked him, What quantity of strychnine would you give, if you wanted to kill a dog? The reply was, from half a grain to a grain the prisoner then asked would you expect to find any traces of it in the stomach after death newton answered no and on his doing so he observed the prisoner make a movement conveying an intimation of his delight i had at one time thought that my learned friend engaged for the defence would have attempted to show that the prisoner had purchased the strychnia at the commencement of the week for the purpose of destroying dogs. But no evidence whatever has been adduced to establish such a point, and we have no evidence of any kind to show how that strychnia was applied. But my learned friend has contended that the prisoner had no motive for taking away the life of his friend, Cook. Now, if I convince you upon unimpeachable evidence that the death of Cook had been caused by strychnine, and that that strychnine could only have been administered by the prisoner then the question of motive must become a mere secondary consideration it is often difficult to give into the breast of man and to ascertain with any certainty the reasons which directed him to any particular course of action and the inscrutable character of any particular motive ought not to destroy the force of a well-authenticated fact but motive is unquestionably an important element in a case over which any doubt as to the facts can by any possibility rest i believe i can perfectly satisfy your minds that in this case the prisoner had a motive and a very obvious motive for taking away the life of cook he was at the time reduced to a condition of the direst embarrassment it appears that in the month of november last he owed on bills not less than nineteen thousand pounds of which twelve thousand five hundred pounds worth was in the hands of pratt and out of that latter sum five thousand five hundred pounds was pressing for immediate payment by the death of cook he was enabled to obtain possession of one thousand and twenty pounds due to the latter in the shape of bets he was enabled to obtain possession of the money which cook must have had about him on his arrival at rugeley and which according to one of the witnesses must have amounted to seven hundred pounds or eight hundred pounds and he attempted to obtain possession of the three hundred and fifty pounds which the messrs wetherby were to have received as the amount of the stake of the shrewsbury handicap the order forwarded by palmer to messrs Weatherby for the three hundred and fifty pounds and purporting to bear the signature of cook had been sent back by them to the prisoner and if that signature was not a forgery Why had it not been produced on the part of the defendant? My learned friend says that Cook was the best friend of the prisoner, and that Cook was the only person to whom he could look for assistance in his embarrassments. But Cook had no means of assisting him, unless he were to appropriate to his use the money which he had won at Shrewsbury, which was all the property he then possessed. And can any one believe that the deceased would have parted with that money, and would have left himself wholly without any resources for the approaching winter. My learned friend contends that the fact that Palmer had written the letter on the Friday night, in which he asked Fisher to pay two hundred pounds to Pratt, on account of a transaction in which both he and Palmer were interested, while three hundred pounds more were to be sent upon that night, my learned friend contends that that fact shows that the prisoner and the deceased perfectly understood one another at the time and goes far to prove the innocence of his client to my mind however that very circumstance affords a very strong argument in favour of the case for the crown the only transaction with pratt in which palmer and cook were both interested was that relating to the bill for five hundred pounds and in which cook had assigned his horse as a collateral security it is very easy to see that he must have felt particularly anxious that that claim should at once be settled and that his horses should come into his own undisputed possession one of these horses being a very valuable one namely polestar which had just won the shrewsbury race he accordingly i have no doubt gave palmer three hundred pounds to be sent up to london on account of that bill but that sum was never applied by the prisoner to the purpose for which it had been placed in his hands there is not the slightest foundation for the statement that cook had entered into an arrangement with palmer for the purpose of defrauding fisher of the two hundred pounds he had advanced for there was nothing in his character which could show that he was capable of so infamous an act and it could not possibly have been his interest that it should take place i will not ask you to direct your attention to the request addressed by the prisoner to cheshire the postmaster that he should bear his witness to the genuineness of cook's signature to the order on the messrs Weatherby for the sum of three hundred and fifty pounds that request was made forty-eight hours after cook's death and if the signature was not a forgery why was that extraordinary demand made of cheshire and why had not the document been since produced it is impossible to forget that if cheshire had testified to the genuineness of that document "'the prisoner would have been enabled to exercise over him "'the most fatal control, "'and that he might then have compelled him to sign another paper, "'transferring, as the prisoner had sought to do "'in the course of one of his conversations, with Mr. Stevens, "'to the deceased, the liability for £4,000 or £5,000, "'due on bills to Pratt and outstanding in his own name. "'All these facts show irrefragably, as I contend, that the death of Cook had, in the opinion of the prisoner, become most desirable for his own relief. There is another part of his conduct as tending to throw light on this matter, and that is with reference to Cook's betting-book. On the night when Cook died, ere the breath had hardly parted from that poor man's body, the prisoner was found there, rummaging his pockets and searching for his papers. When, subsequently, Stevens asked for the betting-book, the prisoner said, Oh, it's of no use, for a dead man's bets are void. True it is that a dead man's bets are void, but not when they are paid during his life. Who received the bets? The prisoner at the bar. Who was answerable for them? The prisoner at the bar. Who had an interest in concealing the amount of those debts? The prisoner at the bar. If Stevens had seen that book, he would have seen that cook was entitled to a sum of one thousand and twenty pounds he would have seen that fisher was his agent and from him that herring and not fisher had calculated his bets but there is still more yet to be accounted for when Stevens determined upon having a post-mortem examination what was the conduct of the prisoner at the bar the learned attorney-general then proceeded to refer to the arrival of dr harland in the town of rugeley for the purpose of making the examination, his conversation with Palmer, when the latter said that Cook had died of epileptic fits, and that traces of old disease would be found in the head and heart, none of which were, however, found on the examination of the body. The removal of the jar containing the stomach and intestines of Cook, the slits cut in the covering, probably for the purpose of introducing something into the jar, which would neutralise the poison if it were present, the restlessness and uneasiness of the prisoner while the examination was going on his remonstrating with dr bamford for letting the jars be sent away and his attempt to bribe the postboy to upset the chaise and break the jar the conduct of mr Stevens, the stepfather of cook in resolving to prosecute this inquiry was such as the gravity and importance of the case proved ought to have protected him from the charge of insolent curiosity brought against him by my learned friend the honourable and learned gentleman then concluded as follows it is for you to say under these circumstances whether or not the death of the deceased was caused by the prisoner at the bar you have indeed had introduced into this case one other element which i cannot help thinking might well have been omitted you have heard from my learned friend an unusual i think i may even say an unprecedented expression of the innocence of his client i can only say on that point that i believe my learned friend might have abstained from any such statement what should he think of me if imitating his example i should at this moment declare to you on my honour as he did what is the internal conviction which has followed from my conscientious consideration of this case my learned friend has with a full display of his great ability also adopted another course which although sometimes resorted to by members of our profession involves in my mind a species of insult to the good sense and the good feeling of the jury my learned friend told you that if your verdict in this case should be guilty the innocence of the prisoner will one day or other be made manifest and you would never cease to regret the verdict you have given if my learned friend was sincere in that and i know that he was for there is no man who is more alive than he is to the claims of truth and honour but if he said what he believed all i can state in answer is that i can only attribute the conviction he has expressed to that strong bias which his mind easily perhaps received in directing all his energies to the defence of a man charged with this frightful crime but i still think he would have done well to have abstained from any assurance of the innocence of the prisoner at the bar. I go further and say that I think he ought, in justice and in consideration to you, to have abstained from telling you that the voice of the country would not sanction the verdict which you might give. I say nothing of the inconsistency which is involved in such a statement, coming from one who but a short time before complained in eloquent terms of the universal torrent of passion, and of prejudice by which, he said, his client was borne down in answer to my learned friend i have only this to say to you pay no regard to the voice of the country whether it be for condemnation or for acquittal pay no regard to anything but the internal voice of your own consciences trust to the sense of that duty to god and man which you are about to discharge upon this occasion seeking no reward except the comforting assurance that when you shall look back at the events of this trial you have discharged to the best of your ability and to the utmost of your power the duty you have been called upon to fulfil if on a review of the whole case comparing the evidence on one side and on the other and weighing it in the even scales of justice you can come to the conclusion of innocence or even entertain that fair and reasonable doubt of guilt of which the accused is entitled to the benefit in god's name give to him that benefit but, If, on the other hand, all the facts and all the evidence lead your minds with satisfaction to yourselves to the conclusion of his guilt, then, but only then, I ask for a verdict of guilty at your hands. For the protection of the good, for the repression of the wicked, I then ask for that verdict by which alone, as it seems to me, the safety of society can be secured, and the demands, the imperious demands, of public justice can be satisfied.' the honourable and learned gentleman concluded his address shortly after half-past six o'clock after having occupied the breathless attention of every one who had heard him during a period of three hours and three-quarters lord campbell then addressed the jury as follows the cause of public justice imperatively requires that the court should now adjourn i shall feel it my duty in this important case to bring before you the whole of the evidence on the one side and on the other accompanying the reading of it with such remarks as i may think it proper to make it is impossible to enter on that duty at this hour and i am therefore under the painful necessity of ordering that you be again kept sequestered from your families and friends during another sabbath the court then adjourned at twenty-five minutes to seven o'clock until ten o'clock on monday we may here observe that the prisoner listened with deep attention to the whole of the address of the Attorney General, and even with an air of considerable anxiety, although he still preserved his usual perfect self possession of Section twenty one